Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show... 255, I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We've got a nice big show today, lots to get through. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up, we have one of those little short stories by Benjamin Rosenbaum called Angry Child. This came out in the collection, or came from the science fiction website Daily Science Fiction, and it was that Numbers Quartet. Now, I played a couple from that little collection already. Nancy Fulder and Aliette Debord was in there as well, and Stephen Gaskell. This one's by Benjamin Rosenbaum. Next up is the main fiction, and it's by Gregory Frost. Now, Gregory has done a, a number of narrations for Starship Sova. He's coming on today with one of his own stories there, The Seals of New Relia. So do look out for that. Then we have a little promo by Cheapskates. Our very own Adam has got a shot at a story competition. He's got a story in a competition, and he's just a little promo to give him a nudge there, help him, help him on with that. Then we have... Our very own Diane Severson with her little shot at Poetry Planet this month. Then to round things off, a great first chapter is by John Dodds called The Mechanicals, book one, The Apprentice. Do look out for that at the very end as well. So that is Starship Sova, 255. I do hope you will stick around. So like I say, first up is a very little short story by Benjamin Rosenbaum called Angry Child. Like I say, this came out in that collection that was over there at the Daily Science Fiction, the Numbers Quartet. And hopefully, you know, eventually that will be put into a, like an e-book form as well so you can get it. But we've got a number of those stories, you know, ready to go and I've already played, you know, stories from that collection. Just for those who don't know, Benjamin Rosenbaum is an American science fiction, fantasy and literary fiction writer, computer programmer whose stories have been finalists for the Hugo Award, the Nebula Award and the Thea Sturgeon Award. He's also had a go there at the British Science Fiction Fantasy Award and the World Fantasy Award. He was born in 1969. Ho-ho! 
we played a story by, or played a number of stories by Ben Rosenbaum, and you know the one that kind of, I guess most people remember is the Ant King, and it was narrated by our very own Larry as well. That was a cracking story. This story is just like a very a very short one, but is narrated by Bob Ho, who is a biologist, a teacher, an artist, a writer, photographer, traveller, computer geek, history nerd, proud uncle, and avid science fiction fan since shortly after his birth. Being uncle was, what he says, is the only thing that came late. He was raised in the San Francisco Bay Area where he now lives, but he's lived and worked around most of North America. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Angry Child by Benjamin Rosenbaum Standard Gravity The standard acceleration due to freefall is the nominal acceleration of an object in a vacuum near the surface of the Earth. Approximate value of 9.81 meters per second. Symbol G, derived from the law of universal gravitation stated in Sir Isaac Newton's Principia, first published in 1687 A.D. An angry child pushed her father out the window of a tall castle. Her father knew the push was coming, but he failed to take hold of the window ledge. Why, he asked himself as he fell, had he failed to take hold of the window ledge? Exhaustion, stubbornness, perversity, guilt. He was not a terrible father. He did not hit his children, or at least not often, or at least he did not push them out of windows. He was a better father, admittedly, in the morning. In the morning, fresh from the dewy weightless caverns of sleep, with nice light poured by the bucket through the diaphanous curtains of their apartments, he would meet tantrums with gentle firmness and invent distracting finger puppet games. But in the evening, after a day of small bureaucratic labors, he would snap at the girl and her brother. He would drag them by the arms. He would nurse petty grievances against them. These small bureaucratic labors related to the logistical details of the activities in which the authorities occupying the castle were involved. Some of these activities, especially since the commencement of hostilities, were unspeakable. He carried the knowledge of these unspeakable activities in his throat, unable to swallow it. If you aren't going to eat your soup properly, he would shout, then you can't have any at all. This he would instantly regret. The soup plate would be in his hand already, the words in the air already, but he would be surprised by them. They seemed to have simply occurred without anyone's explicit intention. A product of circumstances. Just as he knew, at that moment, a transport was departing, authorized by the standing rule pertaining to transport authorizations. The form pertaining to its departure bore his signature. This signature was not an authorization. He himself had no power to authorize. It was required merely that he attest the functioning of the standing rule. Could he, he would wonder, simply slip the dish back onto the table? Would everyone then be willing to pretend that he had not spoken, that he had simply found the soup plate in his hand by accident? But the girl, eyes wide with rage, would already be gathering breath to yell. She was extremely strong-willed, intimidating, in fact, despite being a child. He therefore could not return the dish to the table, not with a girl yelling. It would constitute a submission, an abdication. One must be resolute. An absence of authority is the last thing which we can afford. And so, he would have to take the soup away and pour it out the window, and she would have to go to bed hungry, and he would have to stand in the corridor outside her room, listening to her cry. Perhaps there would have been alternatives. A stern offer of one more chance, or an absurd, light-hearted remark, 
just in time to transmute his daughter's yell into a quizzical snort of laughter, so that he could return the dish to the table, as if he had planned this gentle, humorous admonition all along. In the morning he could think of such things, but not in the evening, with this itch in his throat. Recently, he had catalogued his small bureaucratic labors along a moral axis. This was a personal activity. Personal time was allotted to him during the course of the day. According to his calculations, based on their ultimate effects, 72% were benevolent or neutral, involving such matters as grants of land tenure, public works, reasonable distributions of wealth, support for the arts, zoning, sanitation, and national security operations of a justifiable nature. The remaining 28% were morally pernicious. Unwarranted preferment of certain individuals and groups violations of the international conventions of war, and some activities which were, in fact, as we have said, unspeakable. It is true that the transport had required his signature, but it was not an authorization, only an attestation of the functioning of the standard rule. He had begun to consider, in fact, whether a change of employment might be possible. Now, however, he was falling from a window of a tall castle, and this option was foreclosed to him. He missed his children and also his wife, who by now would have returned from her own duties in the castle and be attending to the aftermath of his having fallen out the window, consoling the children and putting them to bed. He very much hoped his daughter would not feel too guilty. A small amount of guilt was perhaps appropriate. She did bear some responsibility after all, but she was not to blame for his having failed to grab the window ledge. That was entirely his own fault. He wished he could tell her this. There was a small, wormy sensation of worry near his heart. It was critical that she not blame herself too much. He hoped that his wife would be able to communicate the proper perspective. He also hoped that she would put them to bed on time. Adequate sleep would be of great help in beginning their new fatherless life. Sleep is of great importance in maintaining the proper perspective. The sun had now set. Stars could be seen against the gentle, dusky blue. As it happened, he was still holding the soup plate, which he now released in order to uncramp his fingers. The soup, of course, had long since flown away. The soup plate, however, did not fly away, but fell beside him, oscillating slightly. They proceeded together thus, man and dish, descending through the twilight in companionable silence. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Ben Rosenbaum. I'll put a link on to the daily science fiction because that is a nice little, well, it's a lovely little site there. Every day, science fiction, you're publishing science fiction stories and you can get them emailed, I think, as well. So how cool is that? So next up is the main fiction and it's by Gregory Frost, The Seals of New Relia. Now what I'll do is I'll play this story straight away because Gregory gives a little kind of introduction to this story and then I'll have a little chat about Gregory Frost at the end of it. Gregory, sir. Hi, this is Gregory Frost. The story I'm about to read, The Seals of New Relaya, was written for the H.P. Lovecraft-themed anthology Cthulhu's Reign, edited by Daryl Schweitzer. I've at one time or another read most of the main canon of Lovecraft, I suppose. It's interesting enough, but I wouldn't want to live there. I've also read the major canon of mystery writer Donald Westlake, and I'm a huge fan of his fiction, particularly of his Dortmunder stories. 
So when Daryl approached me to write a Cthulhu piece, I decided that I would instead pen an homage to the late Donald Westlake in the style of Dortmunder, which is what you'll hear now. I hope you like it. The Seals of New Relaya by Gregory Frost Did you hear something? Detweiler asked. Stipe paused to listen. Detweiler couldn't help himself. He glanced back down the tunnel. He could hear blood ringing in his ears. Underneath that, he wasn't sure if he heard wind or the whump, whump of leathery wings. It was paranoia. He needed confirmation on that. Besides wind, you mean? Stipe asked. Yeah. Just them chanting upstairs, but you have to listen hard. Fine. Let's hurry it up. Detweiler turned his attention back to his pry bar. He'd already chipped out the mortar around the massive stone block, enough room to wedge the bar in. Whatever else he had to say about life under Cthulhu, he appreciated the dependability of the architecture. Dependable in the sense that it made the removal of one stone from the foundation wall a simple matter of physics, fulcrums, levers, and offset stones. Stipe referred to the form as Ugaritic. In the old days, Stipe had read a lot on the toilet, mostly National Geographic's. Detweiler only cared that he could pull out one stone and not have the whole wall collapse on top of him. Together, they revolved the loosened stone. Then Stipe got a rope around it and they pulled it out. It hit the floor of the tunnel with a boom that must have set off seismographs in Mongolia, assuming either Mongolia or seismographs existed any longer. They paused to listen again. No wings, no sound beyond the distant roar of wind. Nobody, more to the point nothing, was crawling down the tunnel after them, and now there was a hole in the wall big enough to climb through. This better work, said Detweiler. John, if Cthulhu catches you inside the vault, what'll he do to you? Pull me apart like your little brother torturing an insect? And if you go back to living in the rubble of our dying world? The same, I suppose, just, you know, later on. So? Yeah, great. Detweiler flicked on his halogen flashlight and pulled himself halfway into the hole. Inside lay a vault exactly as Stipe had described, as huge as a cathedral with twisted columns of stone supports. It was almost how he'd imagined Ali Baba's cave to look back when he was a kid. Ali Baba had been something of a role model. Thieves who rode in, got what they wanted, and rode out again to their secret lair. Detweiler figured a lot of his disappointments as a thief were because nobody rode in on horseback anymore. And that was before Cthulhu had shown up and pretty much flattened civilization. Try to find a horse now. This time, however, things were looking up. The vault abounded with riches, and everywhere golden and silvery objects glinted in the light of his torch. Two enormous soapstone tubs presented heaps of cracked emeralds and what he dared to hope were uncut diamonds, a few as big as his fist. The tubs were covered with carvings and human figures in relief. He wondered who'd done the work. Some poor slob, enslaved by the hideous Cthulhu, probably destroyed the moment he finished. There are jewels in here, Stipe, he called back. We have to take some jewels. We can't break in here and not take some jewels. Okay, we'll take some jewels, but what about the stuff? Detweiler waved the flashlight around. Across the chamber, set on claw-footed displays, stood five circular seals the size of garbage can lids. Oh, yeah, he said. Let me see, Stipe pulled him out of the hole. Detweiler handed him the torch, and Stipe leaped into the hole almost frog-like. Then, oh, he said, as if a woman had just unexpectedly made a pass at him, which for Stipe would have been a life-changing event. He drew himself out. The seals, 
They're worth a lot, right? Detweiler asked doubtfully. Detweiler, they're so valuable nobody even believes they exist. He considered that. Good, he replied. Then nobody will believe when they aren't there anymore. Stipe bent down and picked up one of the three duffels they brought, pushed it into the hole and climbed in after it. Detweiler sighed, grabbed the remaining two bags. So typical of Stipe that he'd taken only his own duffel, Stipe the solipsist, a curse and a blessing. It meant that he was always looking for a score, but also that once he had his own, he lost all interest in everybody else's circumstance. This has resulted in Detweiler's one stretch in Juvie two decades ago and five months in Otisville more recently. Now that Cthulhu had come along and shredded the fabric of society, not to mention time and space, everybody he'd known in the joint was free. A lot of them, he thought, probably shouldn't have been. And because of Stipe, Detweiler felt he bore some responsibility for Cthulhu in the first place, an opinion that was not going to make him popular with the remaining clusters of humanity. Not unless his plan worked. The cult of Glyn Beckman had caught Stipe's attention for a couple of reasons. First, most of its members were wealthy and bred loons, too scabrous even for the Ayn Rand followers to tolerate, but like Rand's thugs, smug in their superiority, so much so that they tended to leave a lot of things unlocked, like, for instance, the walk-in safe in Beckman's study, where the cult's finances and papers were kept, and available, like the valuable artworks decorating Beckman's walls. That appealed to Stipe so much he joined the cult before they'd finished buttering him up. Actually, they didn't know him as Stipe, but as Kellogg, the current and insanely wealthy scion of the serial empire of the same name. The cult was far more cautious and guarded about a book that Beckman claimed to have translated. He claimed that his was the only accurate translation anywhere. All other followers of the Mad Al-Hazred made mistakes. That's why everyone from Waitley to Akeley, who refused to act the fool, ultimately failed to open the gate. Yogg-Sothoth is indeed the gate, but it's only the first of six. It all had something to do with seals. Like at the circus, Detweiler had asked. Stipe replied, no, I don't think so. All he expected Detweiler to do was pretend to be a rich refrigerator magnet and a total believer in Beckman's lunacy. A couple nights in the house, we wait till everybody's asleep, load up all we can carry, and we get out of there. By the time they notice we haven't shown up for mimosas, we're like in New Hampshire. It sounded ridiculously simple, which was probably why Detweiler thought it couldn't possibly work. But once he was inside the house and dressed in a rented tuxedo and was given a tour of the place, he had to admit it looked as simple as it sounded. The artwork wasn't wired, the safe was left ajar, and when he mentioned this to Beckman, the answer astounded him. After we open the gate, my friend, there'll be no need for alarm, security, protection. As Beckman explained, he puffed on a cigar the size of the Hindenburg. We shall rule the world. Yep, Detweiler agreed. Nuts. There was no time to waste. The group was preparing for a big ritual the following night. Detweiler worked out the scenario. The two of them would pretend to get drunk while celebrating and pass out downstairs, allowing all the others to go to bed. Then they would clean the place out. He determined the fastest route through the house while carrying priceless Miro's and Picasso's. He'd already gotten the code number that opened the front gate of the estate, the one security element Beckman did rely upon and which Stipe had missed. All they had to do was join in the group's little event. Of course, things hadn't exactly followed the script. 
The ceremony with the weird stone seal, which Beckman split in two, had ripped open reality. A horrible lightning charged, rending that Detweiler still couldn't believe he'd witnessed. From some other foul and pestilent dimension, Cthulhu slithered into this one. Unfortunately, he proved to be about the size of Godzilla, far larger than Beckman's house. The whole place came down, beams and ceilings caving in, circuits bursting into flame. Cultists were crushed left and right, including Beckman himself. Detweiler hightailed it into the study as the building collapsed around him. He threw open the door of the walk-in safe, at which point something clocked him. Stipe later claimed it was a plumbing fixture from the second floor, just as he claimed that Detweiler had survived only because Stipe had dragged him into the walk-in safe. That had shielded them both. But Detweiler had awakened alone. True to form, Stipe had snatched half the cash from the safe and taken off. Cash, of course, had already become a useless commodity. Cthulhu and the rest of his loathsome, wet, leathery entourage leveled Maine in an afternoon, and then settled in for a long stay, laying siege to the whole East Coast. The next week was like a bad B-monster movie, with various militaries throwing everything at them. Some of the lesser creatures were destroyed, but Cthulhu seemed only to devour the energy flung his way. Even the nuclear option failed, although nobody would be living in Baltimore again before 2400 A.D. Like cockroaches that had lurked in the woodwork, a network of cults uncannily like Beckman's had emerged across the world, pledging their allegiance to the god. According to stories that he heard later, only some of them survived the contact. Some people... Never learn, Detweiler mused. Granted, the ones who did survive had it better than most everyone else. The arrangement reminded him of trustees in Otisville. Detweiler lived quite some time in the Beckman House safe. It provided protection against the weather, and the location remained undisturbed. Nobody wanted to come near. From the remains of the house, notably the basement pantry, he managed to retrieve assorted canned goods and jellies, a plethora of jellies. It seemed that Mrs. Beckman had enjoyed canning jalapeno jelly for all occasions. In Detweiler's case, all occasions meant just that. He scrounged boxes of crackers, but really missed not having some cream cheese. Somebody, probably Cthulhu, had stepped directly on the refrigerator. The next weeks, he pulled up various parts of the house, occasionally finding someone's remains, including Beckman's. The cigar case and lighter from the suit jacket were about all that survived intact. Finally, he came upon the broken seal and the other objects from the ceremony, including the large, leather-bound book. When the food was about to run out, Detweiler gathered up the remaining supplies and recovered items in a large leather laptop satchel, and over a period of months worked his way down the coast and back to the Bronx, or what it had become. The creatures had taken over. They'd marshaled the survivors of Beckman's interdimensional holocaust into an army of slaves to build monuments to the great Cthulhu, with cultists as their overseers. Already the landscape was starting to look like a representation of ancient Egypt, if the Egyptians had ingested a lot of magic mushrooms before constructing their pyramids. He learned to avoid the barrel-shaped guardians with eyes on tentacles and huge bat wings, and subsisted mostly on canned goods while trying to ascertain what use somebody with his skills was in a world turned so upside down. He came upon people hiding out in underground garages and former basements, and shooting each other over who got to sleep on a dirty piece of cardboard. How good it was to see that we'd all settled our differences in the face of a common enemy. The general opinion was that over a billion people had perished in the first week alone, but nobody knew what was true. It was merely the prevailing rumor. 
The future for Detweiler narrowed to encompass how to get food, how to survive the night without being shot, and how to stay warm as the weather turned cool. The last thing he expected ever again was to encounter Stipe. One afternoon, as he was creeping through some rubble, Detweiler came to an oddly fashioned tunnel. It wasn't a sewer tunnel or a subway. It was something that looked freshly carved and weirdly organic, glowing with an eerie, rippling phosphorescence as if the walls within were pulsating, a kind of living formation that produced patterns as he passed by. At least it seemed organic until he came to a wall of immense, roughly rectangular stones. These appeared to be the foundation for something above ground. Detweiler suspected that he'd blundered beneath one of the weird temples. He turned to leave, only to find his way blocked by a Twinkie. As such creations went, this was the granddaddy of hostess desserts, a slithering brown granular lump the size of a Clydesdale that only moved when necessary, and very quietly at that. He was trapped, but instead of crushing him or absorbing him or whatever else he expected it to do, the thing let him sidle past, and then herded him back out of the tunnel and up to the surface where three more joined it, offering him only one course to take. They drove him across a roughly hewn stalagmitic plaza toward one of the many ugly off-kilter temples. Well, he thought he'd had a good run, come about as far as anyone could hope in this twisted world. That's when he heard someone call his name, looked up, and found Stipe striding across the neural landscape. Stipe, wearing a black suit and white shirt, looking for all the world like a beaming Jehovah's Witness come to lay on him a copy of the Watchtower. The Twinkie Wranglers parted to let Stipe through. Stipe slapped him on the shoulder, took him by the arm. Man, I almost didn't recognize you with a beard. Good to see you. I was sure you'd do okay. Yeah, I was real safe in that safe. Safe in the safe. <laughs> Stipe wiped at his eyes. That's a good one, John. Yeah, come with me. Detweiler eyed the clustered Twinkies. Stipe insisted, no, really, it's okay. They know you're one of us. Us? You know what I mean. You're a Beckman. I'll have nightmares forever. Well, I, I think maybe I can help you with that. You need a bath, John, a shave. Come on. They walked off across the plaza toward a group of humans, all dressed in much the same garb as Stipe, even the women. Some of them looked to Detweiler a little peculiar, as if maybe their parents had been spadefoot toads. Stipe explained to them that Detweiler was a surviving member of Beckman's group. The others oohed and awed as if he was a lost treasure. They welcomed him to New Relaya. Eventually, Stipe dragged him off for a tour of the facilities. What's New Relaya? Detweiler pronounced. It's what Cthulhu renamed New York, the parts he had rebuilt anyway. What happened to old Relaya? I think it sank into the Pacific. Anyway, this is where we all are now. Home sweet from the gluey, huh? Stipe chuckled. Hey, you remember some of the words from the ceremony? Yeah, one or two. As they entered through a gaping doorway, Stipe asked, So, like, what do you have in the bag? Toothbrush, replied Detweiler. Right. The inside of the place was just as rough and knurled. No surface was either exactly horizontal or vertical. The light came from more phosphorescence. Lichen, Stipe explained. As they walked, something huge, brown, and repulsive flew by. Its stalked eyes turned to observe them. Its leathery wings flapped heavily. Then it shat something green and noxious. Oh, great. Can, can we go another way? Detweiler asked. It's just Fathagen, poop. I'd say this whole Fakakta setup's Fathagen. Ah, don't be like that. We're going to score hugely here, man, now that you're back. No kidding. 
how do we define hugely in the universe of flying tentacled beer barrels? Stipe explained that Cthulhu's human followers were already hoarding all kinds of treasures. Great works of art, things lifted out of what had been the Met and the MoMA, jewelry, gold, silver, anything that seemed like it might one day represent wealth for a new ruling class. Like that cash he made off with. Stipe shrugged. Yeah, well, that, that didn't play out too well. That's why I had to rejoin the overseers. So, where are they keeping all this wealth to be? Inside the monuments. Well, underneath them, really. Like the tunnel I just came from? Stipe's eyebrows raised. Wonder they nabbed you. Cthulhu's got a thing for tunnels. Loves them. Why? He's the size of the moon. He couldn't fit his left nut in one. And you know what else? Stipe confided. Some of the other groups showed up with more seals. Seals like Beckman's, you mean? Absolutely. It's a shame Beckman's book got smushed. How so? Well, see, that's the only translation that was accurate, just like Beckman claimed. So nobody can work the seals. Nope. And now they're not going to get the chance. Why not? Well, Cthulhu doesn't want anyone to have them. Every time somebody's showing up with another one, it's confiscated. He doesn't want to open the rest of the gates? Stipe shrugged. Not yet, I guess. Probably wants to finish remaking the world in his image so he can show it off to the other gods. Detweiler glanced around at the carved interior, the candid doorways, vaulted ceiling, rough and narrow steps. He seems to be having some success with that. I got a place picked out where we can move everything till we need it. Place? Yeah, a while back I found an old abandoned subway line that I don't think has been in operation like since forever. The tunnel has covered it up to bore one of Cthulhu's tunnels, but I made sure to leave one way into it. It's so close to the Temple of Yagoth, though, that nobody else will go near it. Why is that? You haven't been there, have you? asked Stipe. How would I know? Because if you had, you'd be a gibbering mess now. The, the place exudes cosmic dread like a noxious gas. You hallucinate loathsome star clusters and feel your very atoms come apart in slow motion in agony so terrible that most people hurl themselves to the death at the very start of it. Yeah, I think I'd remember that. We only get together and chant there like once a year. How is it anybody's left? Instead of answering, Stipe went on. I figure we can pull whatever we want out of the other temples, store it down under there, sell it back to them if we have to, but otherwise we sit it out till we need some capital. Then we bargain. You're talking about the seals. Stipe smiled broadly. You always were a smart guy, Detweiler. Not smart enough. That's why you got me. Detweiler closed his eyes and said nothing. And so they'd spent days worshipping Cthulhu and his inhuman underlings at various sites around New Relea and their evenings scouting each elephantine temple and slimy tunnel until they'd located the collected seals of Kadath, a matter made harder by the repeated denials they heard, mostly from the Cthulians themselves, that the seals had ever existed. With the stone pulled out, the two slipped into the unguarded vault beneath the Temple of Ultimate Chaos, which Detweiler observed looked like a greenish-black intestinal polyp. They filled the duffels with the five seals, and Detweiler took time to add as many of the rough-cut diamonds as he could scoop up before Stipe nervously said, They stopped chatting. It had indeed grown silent overhead. But no one was making their way down the Stygian stairways to this vault, either. Detweiler snatched a few more jewels. Stipe grunted as he hauled his duffel over to the hole. 
It took the two of them to lift it up and over and lower it down the outside. The weight of the bag almost pulled Stipe out of the opening. They repeated the act with the other two before climbing out. Stipe was dirty and sweating. Detweiler imagined that he looked much the same. We're going to have to come back for the third one of these. Just to the end of the tunnel for now, said Detweiler. You're crazy. Yeah, I must be. He lifted his duffel and started walking, bow-legged and slow. Stipe followed him. At the mouth of the tunnel, Detweiler set his bag down and went back for the third one. He carried that with less trouble and set it on top of Stipe's bag. They looked out into the night. This was the part of the journey that presented the most peril. The duffels had to travel to the subway entrance a good half a mile away, but Detweiler had worked that all out. After checking to be sure no one was watching from outside the glowing tunnel, he crept off into the dark and returned a few minutes later with a dinged-up wheelbarrow. Where'd you find that? I used to move with it before your Twinkies caught me. You're a genius, John. Now and then. They loaded the last of the duffels and then stipes into the barrow. We're still going to have to leave the third one here. Three's too heavy. Yeah, I'll stay with it, Detweiler said. I know how you like to make off with the goods, and I can wait. Stipe lifted the wheelbarrow onto its single wheel. Yeah, I can handle this okay. I'll be back in under an hour. Be careful. Stipe headed off, shortly disappearing over the rise and into the landscape. Amazing how dark it got without streetlights, Detweiler thought. No wonder we invented them. After resting, he set to work. First, he recovered his satchel, which he'd been careful to hide near the tunnel's mouth. Now, in the dull greenish glow of the fungi at the opening, he pulled out the battered copy of Beckman's Necronomicon, and with a few loose bricks set it up so that he could read from it. Next, he unzipped the duffel. He'd put two of the seals in the bag in order to ensure that Stipe could transport the remaining duffels by himself. Now he hauled them out one at a time, afterwards rolling each to where he could see it clearly in the pulsating glow. A low, shambling sound caught his attention, and one of the Twinkies slid slug-like into the edge of the tunnel's luminescence. Detweiler edged back to the book and flipped through the pages. Regnadkissen, he read. The Twinkie flexed as if something invisible had poked it. Kla! Yeehaw! It turned and scuttled away. Bugs shug off. Detweiler glanced from the book to the seals. The runes on each were distinctive, and only one bore the correct symbols as illustrated in Beckman's book. When he was absolutely certain, he rolled the other one across the rubble to where an old fire hydrant still stood anchored to pavement below the debris. Certain he'd end up with a hernia, he lifted the round stone over his head and then as hard as he could dashed it on the tip of the hydrant. The seal shattered. Somewhere, distantly in the night, something squealed like a lobster being immersed in a pot of boiling water. The sound faded. Thunder rumbled. Hey! a voice called. Detweiler turned. Stipe was approaching with the empty wheelbarrow. Detweiler walked back over to his duffel and the remaining seal. He knelt beside the book and placed the seal face up on the ground in front of him. Stipe set down the barrow. What you doing, man? Oh, this and that. Stipe stopped. That's the book, Detweiler. Beckman's book. Yes, it is. Makes for interesting reading. For instance, I can tell you why Cthulhu's been hoarding all these seals. Really? Oh, yeah. But give it twenty minutes and he'll be here anyway. Alarmed, Stipe looked around up at the sky at the repulsive towers. He will? Yeah, I got his attention. He gestured toward the hydrant, the broken pieces of seal standing out in greenish contrast to the gray debris. John, you have any idea what even one of those is worth, potentially? Kind of. 
pretty much all of humanity. Distantly, the air vibrated, a quiet, slow rhythm. Detweiler gestured with his thumb at the book. According to Beckman, this world of ours used to be Cthulhu's domain about eight or twelve millennia ago. He's responsible for this local area, which is big, but not compared to all space and time. The realm he got booted to from here was kind of limbo between dimensions. Thing is, honestly, he's a cousin to the old ones. I mean, the real old ones. They're not like him. No? Infinitely worse. They'd likely have scorched the whole solar system by now, melted the planets and reassembled them as something you and I can't even comprehend, Stipe. We don't perceive enough dimensions. How do you know this? Well, I don't exactly. It's what the book says. I mean, Beckman could just be nuts like we both thought. The whump of huge and unseen wings grew steadily louder. If that's the case, though, Detweiler continued, we're in trouble here. What have you done? Stipe stood as if ready to bolt. This, he tapped the remaining seal, this is the second seal. Your old ones think of Cthulhu as the cousin you don't invite to the wedding because he picks his nose and wipes it on the bride's gown, you know what I'm saying? They gave him our backwater swamp to manage just to keep him off on his own. The gates are in place to keep him out as much as us in. This seal, by the way, is uh, called Yog tetheroth The sound of wings seemed to be nearly overhead. You open this one, he glanced at the book and yelled, Krell boinye! Kedath narwhal keikiba! Then went on, as if nothing had happened. And you'll uh, reopen the buffer space between Cthulhu and the rest of the family. Suck him right back out. What are they like, the old ones? Well, all it says is you can smell them, but you can't see them. Something huge, writhing, with red glowing eyes emerged out of the clouds above. Detweiler drew the crowbar from his duffel. Of course, it requires a sacrifice, uh, nothing personal. He drove the sharp edge of the crowbar straight into the seam down the middle of the seal. With a flash, the greenish stone split in half. Stipe put his hands out as if to push away from something. His mouth opened in a scream, but the more thunderous scream from the creature above drowned him out. Cthulhu turned and vanished back into the clouds. That's not right, Detweiler muttered. Stipe hadn't moved or vanished. A pure blackness arising from the broken seal spread up and out surrounding him, but leaving him untouched, save that his face contorted into a mask of revulsion. His eyes watered and he clamped both hands over his nose. The blackness rose like smoke upon a breeze and faded. Lying flat on the ground, Detweiler glanced over at the book. He read the relevant passages again. Krelbornia, Kadoth, Narwhal, Kakeboth. That's what it says. That's what I said. I don't get it. Then the stench reached him. It was like the distilled essence of sulfuric eggs run through an oil refinery and then fired out of a skunk's butt. He pressed his face into the dirt and groaned. Stipe on his knees coughed and wheezed. What did you do, John? I... I was sending Cthulhu back to where he came from. He leaned up on his elbows. You know when I said Beckman was nuts? Yeah? Well, his translation's screwy, too. Overhead clouds floated, drifted. Then, as if a titanic soap bubble had reached them, they flew apart. Moonlight spilled down, but distorted and sickly yellow as though projected through old cellophane. 
Detweiler could feel phantoms nearby, invisible, amorphous things that swelled against the very fabric of reality. You let in the old ones, Stipe said. Uh, yeah, let's not mention that to the others, okay? He got to his feet. He wiped at his eyes, sniffled, choked. Listen, if we're lucky, he was wrong about them melting the planets and stuff, too. Stipe got up, shook his head like a dog. I can't get that stink off me. The ruin of a nearby building suddenly flexed and distorted. As if liquid, it drew together, the top of it curled like an ocean wave and then stretched into the clouds. The night filled with distant, piteous cries of horror, not all of them human. We, uh, we might want to go back into the tunnel a while, Detweiler suggested. He bent down to pick up Beckman's book. The stars in the night sky shuddered. Just till things settled down. He headed into the phosphorescence. With a final glance at the world, Stipe stumbled into the mouth of the tunnel, too, but abruptly drew up. Deadweiler, he yelled. What did you mean you needed a sacrifice? There you go. Don't forget copyright is Gregory Frost. Gregory is the author of the novels which include Shadowbridge series from Del Rey and Fitch's Bride from Tor. His short stories have appeared most recently in Supernatural Noir, edited by Ellen Datlow and the Apex magazine. He's the director of the Fiction Writing Workshop at Swarthmore College. Gregory has, he's done a number of short stories for Starships over and been very kind to kind of, you know, like, let her have the money. You know what I mean? When you just listen to Greg's voice there, what a great narrator Greg is as well. But he, he was stretched to his limits. Give Greg a story for, actually, Greg, hey, Greg volunteered for this one, for a story over on the Crime City Central, I think it was. And it involved some, some accents that, let's just say Greg wasn't used to. So that'll be coming up on Crime City Central. So that's Great, that was fantastic. Yes, push to the limits, sir. So before we get into the next little bit, which is kind of a little promo for Cheapskates, I just want to mention as well, don't forget we have tickets are on sale for the God, for the event, my little kind of lifetime here, the event. It is Joe Haldeman, How to Write Science Fiction with Joe Haldeman. How cool is that? And it's funny because Cher from Crime City Central as well, the editor over there, was asking you, she had a couple of, the audible credits left and just mentioned you know is there any kind of you know books you can recommend you know and she was going down you know going down the neil gaiman route which is not a bad one do you know what i mean so american gods is the one under mentioned that way but do you know if you haven't honestly read the forever war by you know joe haldeman that is the book of you know what i mean the book to read it just it's just Pure science fiction. That, you know, and I, I could always say, like, and you know now, even when I kind of say this, you know, that and for, the Flowers for Algernon, just two great books there, but that Forever War, you know, if you just love science fiction, then it's just, you know, it's just, oh, yeah, I can't praise enough. You know, if you want to come over to that workshop as well and ask the Joe Haldeman questions, you know, you want to put to him, please come over. There is a big big widget there on the front of the website so do look out for that as well and that's where you click on that and you can come straight over and tickets are selling really good that's amazing i think in the first day there was 10 sold do you know what i mean the first day that's never happened before so brilliant so we have another little kind of shout out from our adam from cheapskates adam what's going on in your world 
Greetings, fellow travelers on the Starship Sofa. This is Adam, your host for the Cheapskate segment here on the Sofa. But I'm here today to let you know about some exciting personal news. My thanks to Tony for being kind enough to allow me to share it right here on the podcast. So here's the deal. A podcast created by the Discovery Channel called Stuff You Should Know recently held a horror fiction contest. If you're not familiar with the podcast, it's hosted by two guys named Josh and Chuck, and they chat and educate about all manner of topics, everything from photoluminescence to disco. It's consistently a top 10 podcast on iTunes and a staple of my podcast diet. So for the last two years around Halloween, they have broken from their usual format and read a horror story. The last two years, these have been horror classics, H.P. Lovecraft's The Tomb and Edgar Allan Poe's Berenice. This year, however, they decided to change it up and instead read a story from their fan base with a horror fiction contest. They received 104 entries from throughout the United States. From this, they selected 16 finalists. I'm extremely excited to share that my tale, titled Frame Story, is among these finalists. This is easily the most prominent exposure that any of my fiction writing has ever received. So, now that it's down to the 16, the contest will continue with a bracket-style game, with each story going up against one other a week at a time. Each week, the finalists will be reduced by half until there's a single winner at the end, which Josh and Chuck will read on the podcast near Halloween. The bracket contest is actually going on right now, with the first round finishing up at 1 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time on Friday, September 14. I encourage you to go visit the site, read all the great stories on there, and vote for your favorites before Friday. The website is far too long to easily share here, so just check out the show notes on starshipsofa.com or visit my blog site, cheapskatesreview.wordpress.com, and I'll post a link there. Thanks for your time and the privilege of sharing my fiction and the monthly Cheapskates reviews with you. There you go. I've put a link on. Now, I'm, I'm not too sure at this moment. I'm sure Adam, Adam will give us a, a proper link, but I've put a link on to the, kind of, the How Stuff Works you know, entertainment site there. So fingers crossed for Adam. Please go over and you know, help him along. Next is Poetry Planet by our very own Diane Severson. Diane. Welcome to the third edition of Poetry Planet. I am your guide, Diane Severson. First, I apologize for the lateness of this episode. I've had a number of snafus regarding the show I had originally planned for July. Yes, I do realize it's September. I won't go into the grisly details. If you've read my blog or my live journal or follow me on Twitter, you might know them already. Suffice it to say that the coming home theme will occupy the fourth episode of Poetry Planet, and this show will concern itself with the Reisling Award. If you aren't familiar with the Reisling Award, it is the annual award given to two poems, a long one and a short one, published in 2010. This year, anyway. 
The poems are nominated and voted upon by the members of the Science Fiction Poetry Association, so it's akin to the Nebula Awards, and the award is presented at ReaderCon in Maryland in July. The association publishes a beautiful little book containing all the nominated poems and provides each member with a copy as part of the membership's benefits. The top three poems in each category are announced, and so I would like to present them to you today. In the short poem category, we have in third place, Dog Star Men by C.S.E. Cooney. In third place in the long poem category, Wreck Diving the Starship by Robert Fraser. In second place, we have Binary Creation Myth by Karen A. Romanko and Dark Rains Here and There by Bruce Boston. And the winning poems for the 2011 Riesling Awards are, in the short poem category, Peach Creamed Honey by Amal El Motar, and in the long poem category, The Sea King's Second Bride by C.S.E. Cooney. So, we have Bookends by C.S.E. Cooney. Congratulations to all the poets who had poems nominated for the award, but especially to the winning poets. Their poems will be printed along with the Nebula Award-winning fiction in the Nebula Awards Anthology from the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, Incorporated. On to the poetry, I say. Ah, but first a biography. C.S.E. Cooney lives in Chicago, but not for too much longer, revising a novel that, with diligence, a cleaver, and a new gown, will soon be ready for the ball. She has a short story upcoming in Steam Powered 2, an anthology due out at Torquery Press this September. Her story, Braiding the Ghosts, originally published in Clockwork Phoenix 3, can now be found in Rich Horton's Year's Best Science Fiction and Fantasy 2011. Her novella, The Big Baja, is available in ebook at Amazon.com and RollerePress.com. Papaveria Press recently published her novella, Jack of the Hills, in the new Wonder Tales series, available in paperback from papaveria.com and as an ebook at Amazon.com. Her poetry collection, How to Flirt in Fairyland and Other Wild Rhymes, illustrated by Rebecca Huston, is due out next year from Papaveria Press. Dog Star Men by C.S.E. Cooney All the men I might have loved have gone to Sirius. Sirius the Dog Star, the Dead Star of Summer, that Cranberry Bog, that Red Lamp District, promising scarlet women, scarlet waves of grain, a wine-stained sea. My lovely men are gone, leaving their braids behind them. They have left their braids, but they have taken the veins of their wrists, their bony faces and transparent fingers, their cigarettes, even the moist taunt of their throats. They have stolen away, forsaking everything to be happy on Sirius. Oh, Sirius, your houses are made of bougainvillea leaves, and your rain is pink and balsamic. There is blood soup to eat, and dragons, and everyone is a surgeon. Like Magellan before them, my men have circumnavigated mystery without me. Claire says, I think I wrote Dog Star Men under the influence of Neruda and Lorca, and the fact that none of the boys I liked in college liked me back. It also gave me the excuse to use words balsamic and bougainvillea in the same body, which made me inordinately happy. 
I never thought of submitting it anywhere because I always considered it a private sort of poem and perhaps not very good. But Amal El-Motar telepathically whapped me and made me submit it to Cat Valenti at Apex Magazine. It must have been the fastest acceptance email I ever got in my life. Robert Fraser is an American writer of speculative poetry and fiction, as well as an impressionist painter on Nantucket Island. He is a founding member of the Science Fiction Poetry Association and a past editor of their newsletter, Starline. He has edited and published various SF poetry magazines, and his fiction and poetry has appeared in various anthologies, as well as in his own collections. As a historian, Fraser has written several articles on the evolution of the ethics. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Poetry Movement, the most recent being a 2005 primer on the Reisling Awards for the poetry anthology The Alchemy of Stars, the Reisling Award Winners Showcase. His collaborative poem with Bruce Boston, Chronicles of the Mutant Rainforest, received first place in the 2006 Locus Magazine online poetry poll for the best all-time science fiction, fantasy, or horror poem. And he received an Asimov's Reader's Poll Award in 1991. He has won the Reisling Award three times. The Science Fiction Poetry Association named Fraser a Grand Master in 2005. Wreck Diving the Starship by Robert Fraser. Of those who arose from a frozen sleep and fought their way toward the ocean's surface, toward the future on this distant world, only the strongest persevered. Our ancestors were forged diamond-hard, tested by extreme, chosen by fate, yet prepared only in their hearts. We owe them our reverence. Book of the Original Survivors, 2217. 1. Things that cannot happen should not happen, yet there my daughter swims into the glow of my diving lamps. I imagine temporal anomalies or some deep-water-cold equation— for Mira seems more palpable than the daily quanta of minutes since I saw her life swept away so many summers ago, flung by the currents that often haunt the wreck of homeseeker. But how can this happen? Let me shift back to this morning, when I awoke in quarters breathing the familiar perfume of fear, of sea air and exhaust, and the sweat of restless salvage. 2. Sunrise, and six of us set a plan for reaching the less plundered decks by reverse-tracing a path that the ship's passengers once made to freedom. First I check my blends, then pony tanks, then the hollow maps. Dive prep is crucial when your jury-rigged spacesuit can balloon suddenly and lift you to glorious embolism. 3. Two clicks out, two hundred meters down off these alien shores— Colonized by our unwilling ancestors, every one of us felt the vast presence of the ship. After two plateaus, the descent opened up to a rocky shelf, 
Her main section lay beside a precipice that dropped to nothing. I imagined an immense beast at rest in its foreign boneyard. The ship had lost its integrity and its raptor-like shape, obscured by whiptail kelp and a massive school of butterfins that poured from a hull breach like crime scene tape. We swam into an inky dark, cut only by our blue visor lights, started along rope-marked passages we called the Trail of Hearts, illuminating skeletons embalmed in weedy suits and spaghettied cables and knife-edged bulkheads and docking stations sealed forever from space. All the realities of a shattered lifeboat, plus the myths that have crusted about her and clouded reason. 4. 1. She is our true mother, a holiness calling us back to the frosty chambers where she'd suspended us for centuries. 2. She is merely ill-fated and curses all who dive her. 3. A theorem I found unsettling but ultimately worthy. Homeseeker is the embodiment of death transformed, a malevolence still active, still cogitating, still in control. Nonetheless, we'd come here to exercise such sentiments and dive her for her last usable bits of hard and software to rend forever the clockwork of her immense arcology. 5. The trail zigzagged from the hull breach, deep into the central axis, and every step of it a dizzying plunge punctuated by breaks to reset our ropes. When a hard current slammed into me, sending me tumbling, I passed rapidly through alternating light and dark, and I felt as if the fabric of my being shifted, as if time rewound in the direction ahead. The hypnotic possibilities seemed suspect, riddled with as many ominous factors as bright ones. Another slashing current carried me past flooded atriums, then fatally far into the ship, into her mysterious core, the holy grail of ship historians and wreck salvers alike. 6. As I rebooted my lamps, the core stirred with riotous color, all the sea plants and small animals so like yet unlike earths. Never before reached and thusly unknowable, unsafe, the huge cryocenter seemed domed with real atmosphere. I closed my air valve, popped my helmet, and took the chance that could restore my chances at surviving. I found warm mists, and a ceiling like daybreak, winking with clusters of organic phosphorescence. And there, treading in green shallows, was my dearest Mira, a memory reborn, only she was not the girl I lost, not quite, but a complex form whose physiology appeared attenuated whose very phylogeny seemed to have diverged on a track toward a lithe and compact simulacrum, arm-like appendages, and the gilled head of a woman. I invoked her name, knowing I was senseless, disoriented, then its, her eyes, fixed on mine, and spoke the single word that could pierce my grief-hardened heart. Father! Every cell in my chest blackened, burned hot. I was truly lost, yet I found the miraculous, and perhaps a proof for the existence of angels. Postlude. It's been hours in this incubator, or perhaps a day. A thin microbial call films my suit 
and I brush it off and reassess my predicament in sharper relief. Chalk one up for the theory that Homeseeker still hums, that some trickle charge allows the ship its brain, and chalk one also for the primacy of the mothership. However, scratch the theory that her luck is bad, for pure luck has left this all undisturbed for years. Question. Was it my almost Mira, or the ship itself, that sent me reeling and shipwrecked me here, just another lost traveler, finally seeking home? Wreck Diving the Starship first appeared in Dreams and Nightmares, 87. Bob Fraser says, Wreck Diving the Starship came out of two directions. One, a fascination with the dangerous diving in nearby waters, nearby being Nantucket, especially the Andrea Doria, which, by the way, claimed a new victim recently. I'm not a diver, however. Two, a novella I'm working on which approaches the concept of wreck diving a starship from a much different angle. The poem was a spin-off that allowed me to get into the idea, explore below deck, kick up some sediment, and get out before nitrogen narcosis set in. Karen A. Romanko has seen over 100 of her poems and short stories published in venues such as Strange Horizons, Aberrant Dreams, Idiomancer, and Lone Star Stories. When she switches literary hats, she edits and publishes speculative fiction and poetry anthologies under the Raven Electric Inc. imprint, such as Retrospec, Tales of Fantasy and Nostalgia, from 2010, and Jackospec, Tales of Halloween and Fantasy, coming September 2011. Binary Creation Myth by Karen A. Romanko On the null day, God created zero. On the first day, zero created not zero and called it one. On the second day, one and zero lay together to create code. On the third day, code wrote itself to create process. On the fourth day, process ran itself and created result. On the fifth day, result examined itself and created question. On the sixth day, question asked itself and created hypothesis. On the seventh day, hypothesis accepted itself and created God. Karen says this about the poem. I became familiar with creation myths in college where I had a minor in the study of religion. I've never written a computer program, but my husband is a director of a curriculum software project, so we have a techie household. It was perhaps inevitable then that the idea of a binary creation myth would spring to mind and ultimately find realization in this poem. Bruce Boston should be a familiar name among regular listeners of Poetry Planet and Starship Sofa. He has received more major awards for speculative poetry than any other author, a record seven Reisling Awards, a record six Asimov's Readers Awards, and four Bram Stoker Awards for his poetry collections Pitch Blend, 2003, Shades Fantastic, 2006, The Nightmare Collection, 2008, and Dark Matters, 2010, and a Pushcart Prize for Fiction. He was named the Science Fiction Poetry Association's first Grand Master in 1999, Boston has published 26 books of poetry, three novels, two novelettes, and 12 story collections, and 32 poetry collections. Plus, he coined the word cybertext. Dark Rains Here and There by Bruce Boston 
One. When she was a girl in Myanmar, the dark rains fell suddenly in great sheets of water and sound in the heated afternoons. Thunder would rattle the tin roof, and the kitchen would often flood. When the dark rains fell on Myanmar, she lived in poverty beneath the tyranny of a state beyond redemption. When the dark rains fell on Myanmar, the sky gave up its color. Shadows would disappear, for there would be one great shadow covering everything. Two. When she was a woman in San Francisco, the dark rains would fall slowly and steadily for days at a time, turning the pastel houses gray beneath an even grayer sky. When the dark rains fell on San Francisco, the tires of passing cars hissed endlessly on the wet pavements. When the dark rains fell on San Francisco, she lived with passion and belief, and drug-fueled flights to worlds unfathomed. Three. When she was a wanderer in space, the dark rains fell many ways on many different worlds. When the dark rains fell in the labyrinth of canyons that laced the southern hemisphere of Epsilon Eridani Nine, they danced this way and that in constantly shifting whirlpools of wind. When the dark rains fell in the light gravity of Fomalaut's only habitable moon, it was in large, limpid drops clinging to the cilia and limbs of overarching trees. When the dark rains fell on many different worlds, here and there, she learned to live with love bright as rockets flare and loss deep as a singularity. Four. When she was a senora in the high Mexico desert, in the steady days of her peace and resolution, she would stand at the screen door just before dusk. She would listen to the insects ticking against the dusty metal crosshatch, and watch the light from her low red sun encroaching on the deep shade of the porch. When the sky remained cloudless on the high desert, when life seemed dry and spare as the land around her. She found herself watching for one more dark rain she could walk in. Two comments Bruce had regarding the poem: It's particularly gratifying to have this poem place second for the Riesling Award because no publication I sent this to wanted to publish it. It received rejection after rejection, and to get it into print, I had to include it as an original in my collection, Dark Matters. Guess those editors who rejected the poem didn't really know the taste of genre poetry readers. More specifically, addressing the content of the poem, I've always found day after day of unchanging cloudless skies and sunshine more depressing than day after day of constantly changing cloudy and stormy skies accompanied by rain. In fact, I find the latter invigorating rather than depressing. That difference becomes the metaphorical setting for dark rains here and there. Which suggests that a life filled with challenges, with conflicts and changes, can prove more satisfying than one that is peacefully resolved and constant. Amal El Motar is presently pursuing a PhD in English literature at the Cornwall campus of the University of Exeter. She is the author of *The Honey Month*, Papaveria Press, 2010, and has twice been awarded the Riesling Award for Best Short Poem. Her short story, *The Green Book*, was nominated for the Nebula Award, and her work has recently appeared in the Thackeray T. Lambshead Cabinet of Curiosities, Welcome to Bordertown, Stone Telling, Mythic Delirium, 
Strange Horizons, Apex, and Sybil's Garage. She co-edits Goblin Fruit, an online quarterly dedicated to fantastical poetry with Jessica P. Wick, and keeps a blog somewhat tidy at LiveJournal. Peach Creamed Honey by Amal L. Motar They say she likes to suck peaches, not eat them, suck them, tilt her head back and let the juice drip sticky down her chin before licking, sucking, swallowing the sunshine of it down. They say she likes to tease her fruit, bite ripe summer flesh just to get that drip going down, down, sweets her elbow with the slip of it, wears it like perfume. I say she's got a ways to go yet, that girl, just a blossom yet herself, still bashful round the bees. I say no way a girl can tease like that who's been bit into once or twice. So I come round with just a little bit of honey, just a little, little lick, just enough to catch her eye. Creamed peach honey, just the thing to bring her by. And I know she'll let me tell her how the peaches lost their way, how they fell out of a wagon on a sweaty summer's day, how the buzz got all around that there was sugar to be had, and the bees came singing, and the bees came glad. They sucked, she'll blush. I'll tell her they sucked that fruit right dry, till it all got tangled up in the heady humming hive. They made it into honey and they fed it to their queen. And she shivered with the sweet and she licked the platter clean. And she dreamed of sunny meadows and she dreamed of soft ice cream. I'll see her lick her lips and I'll see her bite a frown, and I'll see how she'll hesitate, look from me up to the town and back, and she'll swallow, and she'll say, can I try? And I'll offer like a gentleman, won't even hold her eye. Because she'll have to close them, see, she'll have to moan a bit, and it's when she isn't looking, when she's sighing fit to cry, that I'll lick the loving from her, that I'll taste the peaches on her, that I'll drink the honey from her, suck the sweet of her surprise. Amal says of her poem, I rather unabashedly love this poem. Besides the fact that Danielle Sucher pronounced it her favorite piece of the collection, The Honey Month, it's wonderful fun to perform whether in front of shocked first-year undergraduates, parents and their wide-eyed friends, or spoken-word aficionados kind enough to let a page poet into their midst. I mean, it's about peaches, and the sucking and licking thereof. How can one go wrong? It just tumbled out, line by line. It tugged me along in a way that was halting at first, as I tried to figure out what exactly was happening with it, and then in a lilting rush as I figured it out. I understood that the storytelling part of the seduction needed its own rhythm, and that once that part was done, it would have significantly changed the rhythm of the first part of the narration, and I let it go where it would after that. 
It's important to me for another reason. At the time I wrote it, I was heartily sick of being cast in the role of perpetual ingenue in other people's narratives, of being told I was innocent or cute or sweet or a tease. There is something of a ritual in the poem being the way it is, a courting of that self others see by a self that people don't. The fact that the latter is what shows up in performance is, I think, pretty straightforward. The Sea King's Second Bride by C.S.E. Cooney March is blowing wet and snowy when I stumble upon the Sea King. He is washed up from the water, all his nakedness like heaven, with his hair so lank and heavy, green and black as sodden seaweed, with his harp of kelp and pearl cracked to pieces on his knee. What ails you, my Sea King? I ask this creature, laughing. I love him. How I love him, immediate and sudden, the way you love a rainstorm, the Milky Way, a leopard. That reckless love of wild things after years pent in a city. My bride, Agneta, left me, says the Sea King under the thunder, like the salt and surf and thunder. She has left our seven children and our castle made of coral. She has gone back to her father, to his bright and airy kingdom, has maybe found a lover, some brawny, freckled farmer. She left me for another. But tell me, pretty sea thing, I teased the lonely sea king, what motivates this horror? Perhaps because you beat her? Or threatened sharks would eat her? Or treated her with seven sons, got upon her one by one, and not a year between them? That might just be a reason, if reason's what you're after. It's a basis to be bitter. And no wonder, poor Agneta. His majesty grows maudlin, how he glances, how he glistens, so cunning, yet so awkward, on these sands that bloat and bleach him, in this shape akin to man-shape, gills agape and fins a-quiver, how the seeking skin is silver like lightning under water. Agneta was my daybreak mourns the sea-king on the seashore. I never knew a morning till the morning that I met her when I stole her from her father, leaving only dew behind us. I cried to her, Come under, come beneath, and be my consort. She said she feared the drowning, but I covered her in lilies, a crown of purest lilies, white as beeswax, soft as velvet." I combed her hair with seashells and fed her from my fingers. Her slightest wish I granted with the mightiest of magic. I played this harp of pearl and it swept away her memory. She didn't mind forgetting. I thought it made her happy. The sea king's eyes are dark and wide, like otters slick with oil spill. I poke his spiny ribcage and the silver fish that dance there. He jumps. Perhaps it tickled. At least he can be tickled. Cheer up, my doughty sea king, I shout in manner bracing, for I sicken of this city, of its traffic lights and taxes, of the emails and the faxes, and the work and wage and worry. So tell you what, my darling, you take me to your kingdom, and I'll romp with all your children, spin them stories by the daylight, sing them lullabies at nighttime. And when they're sound and sleeping, I will creep into your bower, to your bed of bright anemone, 
where I'll comb your hair with seashells, pour my palms in perfumed oil. By and by I'll take you deeper than ever sea-king ventured. We will scour off what's rotting, all these thoughts of sweet Agneta. Do you think we have a bargain? The sea-king does not answer, but he shrugs his flashing shoulders, and I take this for a yes. It wasn't like a marriage, no broom or blood or bonfire, but he made a few adjustments for my subaquatic breathing, taught his certain way of speaking like a whale when it's singing, and a kind of seeing clearly through the brine and murk and current. And when I see him clearly, see my seeking underwater, he isn't much to look at until he's underwater, then matter do I love him, love his glimmer in the gloaming, like a tooth or moon or treasure that you wish might be a knife-blade so to wed it with your flesh. Sure enough, his children love me, seven princes crowned in lilies. We are happy in our frolics, and they giggle at my ragging, at my bad jokes and my chit-chat, and the way I tease their father. At breakfast we are raucous, and at dinner most uncouth, at supper always laughing, Well, the kids and I are laughing, but the sea-king sits in silence and recalls his wife, Agneta. She heard the church bells ringing, and she left me, never caring for my soreness or despairing, forsaking all her children, forgetting her beloved. His wet blanket on our banquets somewhat dampens the hilarity, somewhat chisels at my charity, and the boys slink off for climates more conducive to their gaiety, And I tell their father gently, with what kindness I can muster, that our memories are fragile, that we cannot help forgetting, and that precious poor Agneta, please recall my dearest deep one, had been practically lobotomized by all his fell enchantments, so please strive for some compassion. Agneta, cries the sea-king, Agneta, and Agneta, And even though I love him, there are times I'd trade his kingdom, yes, his castle made of coral, and his princes crowned in lilies, for a single good harpoon. By late April I am brooding, and by May I'm truly scheming, and in June I hatch a plan half-conceived in idle dreaming. Oh, the bells, the church bells ringing, I groan unto my sea-king, rending small strategic punctures in my robes of pearl and seaweed, the steeple-bells that scream matins, the sound of papa weeping. In walking or in sleeping, every night and noon I hear them, as if I stood just near them. Oh, the bells, the bell I weaken at their tintinabulations. Won't you let me, dearest sea-king, break to surface and behold them? An hour, just an hour, but one hour do I beg you. Well, the sea-king doesn't like that, does not like that, not at all. He is roused to indignation, which in turn ignites to fury. He is bright as any blizzard, he is cold and white and wondrous, and his bare feet stomp a tidal wave that would have swamped Atlantis, if Atlantis weren't already swamped from when Agneta left him. And he blusters and he thunders and he coaxes and he wheedles. Don't I like his coral castle with its turrets neat as needles? 
and its grottoes and its bowers and its gardens and its mazes? Don't I love to love his children? Am I not content to stay here like the lampreys and the stingrays and the sharks who come to play here? How he sulks and how he scowls, how he pleads and how he howls. But the bells, the bells, I mutter, growing slack and wan and fainter, till he grants me what I ask for. Just one hour, mind, one hour. And he swims me grimly, and he doesn't see I'm smiling. My father's at St. Agnes, where he's often found on Sundays, with his choir and his piano, and the band that plays on Sundays. And I sit with the sopranos, and I join in at the descant, and my father smiles a little, even winks a droll good morning. He is busy with conducting, and he's maybe even praying. Thus I stay the hour allotted me, through Eucharist and homily, but all in all I'd rather be fathoms down beneath the sea with magic and with mystery, my seven heathen darlings and a very cranky sea-king. When the bells have ceased to ring, I kiss my father swiftly. He tells me that he's missed me. I let him know I'm happy, even lacking crowns of lilies, even sopping wet and smelly. I say I'm truly happy. It's all he ever wanted. When he sees me rushing toward him, arms outflung and smile kindled, the sea-king looks astonished, quite bewildered and bedazzled, like he's never seen my likeness. Your hair is bright as goldfish. Your face is sweet as morning. Taking up his silver hand, I vow as how I've missed him, missed his scales and his spackles and his webbed and clammy skin. How choking is this incense! How blinding are the candles after months spent in the darkness of your castle made of coral. But it's nice to see my father. Let's go visit him this autumn. We can introduce the children. The sea-king's rapid smile is a dreadful shock of pleasure, like a little boy's first mischief, like a damsel's foremost coyness, like a man who's given manna when he begged for stale bread. He cocks his head and murmurs through the tousles and the tangles. I never brought you lilies. My goblet runneth over, so I scold him rather sternly. There's time enough for trinkets, time immortal, time forever, time for starfish in my bathtub, time for flowers and a foot rub, time for tokens meant for me alone and not some ghostly maiden, be she ever pure and pious, be she pretty as a lily. For you see, my doughty seeking, I am from a doting family, and I know that you've been lonely, and I know I'm no agneta, but I'm warm and I'm willing. I can offer what I offer, but it will not come to begging. Do you want me for your lover, or pine for one who left you? The sea-king pauses, pondering. I almost punch his face in. Then he smiles like a dolphin, like a green wave, clean and leaping. And he solemnly encants, Come down with me, come under, come beneath and be my consort. I will tell you all my secrets. I will let you take me deeper where no sea-king dared to venture, where Agneta never wandered. You will whisper your desires, and together we'll uncover all the fire in the ocean. Then I give my awkward sea-king this small thing that I've been saving for a moment like this moment, 
when both he and I are ready. First a kiss, and then a promise, then a topple and a tumble. It is frantic, it is frenzied, and we finish in a fever. Come unclasped in joyous moisture, and he leads me to the river, where we hear the children singing. The End The Sea King's Second Bride first appeared in Goblin Fruit, Spring 2010. The Sea King's Second Bride has roots that go back to a high school obsession for Sea Kings, Serial Dreams of the Same, and S.J. Tucker's song Neptune. It's also the fault of writer Nicole Cornhurst-Stace, who, upon learning of my obsession, directed me to John Bauer's painting, Agneta and the Sea King. I rapidly fell in love with it, and Nicole, along with Goblin Fruit editors and poets Amal El-Motar and Jessica P. Wick, bought me the print for my 28th birthday. By this time, I was burning to read the original story of the same name, which Bauer had illustrated in the early 20th century. The moment my book of Swedish folk tales arrived, I thumped myself down to read Agneta and the Seeking. It was late evening. I swallowed the whole thing in a sitting. Then, burning with indignation over the Sea King's stupid behavior, Agneta's milkiness, and stolen bride stories in general, I wrote the first draft of the Sea King's second bride on a magnetic memo pad. It's my favorite performance piece, too. I often recite it to myself while walking home from the train station. And there you have it. The Reisling Award winners and second and third place poems for 2010. In science fiction poetry news, the Stoker Awards were presented in June, but sadly, most people pay more attention to the Fiction Awards, so I'd like to point out that Bruce Boston has won the Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in a Poetry Collection for his collection Dark Matters, published by Bad Moon Books. This is his fourth Stoker Award. Congratulations, Bruce! The Science Fiction Poetry Association online journal of speculative poetry, entitled Eye to the Telescope, has gone live with their second issue. Yes, I missed the boat on the first. This issue concentrates on poetry from New Zealand and Australia and is well worth reading. Our own Grant Stone has a poem within. The first issue of Eye to the Telescope is available in the archives and contains wonderful essays by Deborah Kologi and Samantha Henderson in praise of short and long poetry, respectively, and includes loads of wonderful poems. This journal promises to become a treasure trove for poetry enthusiasts. Check it out. If you live in or near Worcester in England, consider attending or contributing to 42, the Gothic Horror, Sci-Fi, and Fantasy Open Mic Night. The next one takes place on September 28, 2011. Calling all writers, poets, musicians, performance artists, actors, and comedians. If you have an interest in these areas, they want you to get involved. They are always on the lookout for new contributors, so please get in touch. You can RSVP on their Facebook pages. Look for the links in the show notes. A new website dedicated to reviewing speculative poetry has gone live. It's called Versification. So check it out and read up on where you can find great SF poetry. You've heard me mention where the poems in Poetry Planet have been published previously. You've noticed that they come from a variety of sources. Some have been published in the author's collections, but most you can find in various magazines, and many of those are available online. 
There are several print magazines that deal exclusively with science fiction poetry in the broader sense, and I'd like to draw your attention to some of them. As always, if there is a web presence for them, you can find the links in the show notes on the Starship Sofa website. David Kapaska Merkel is the editor of Dreams and Nightmares, which has been in production since 1986. Issue number 89, with poetry by Anne K. Schwader, Bruce Boston, Andy Boyan, Geo Clark, and Kendall Evans, among others, is available now. He is also accepting submissions for issue number 91. Then there's Illumin, which in the latest issue, number 14, features the poetry of Mike Allen and an article by Anne K. Schwader about how the poetry of Emily Dickinson relates to science fiction poetry. Mythic Delirium number 24, edited by Mike Allen, is available now and includes poetry by Gary Every, Joshua Gage, Theodora Goss, F.J. Bergman, Lynn C.A. Gardner, and many others. You can read quite a few featured poems from various back issues on the website. A couple of articles you may find interesting, simply because I did, are Science Fiction Poetry versus Mainstream Poetry by Elizabeth Barrett, found online at Grasping for the Wind. The Idea of the Real, Notes on the History of Speculative Poetry by Mark Rich, and Speculative Poetry, a Symposium by Mike Allen, Alan De Niro, Theodore Goss, and Matthew Cheney, both at Strange Horizons. If you like your poetry in very small doses, head over to Inkscrawl, an online poetry zine dedicated to short poetry of 10 lines or less. Well, that will do it for this particular Poetry Planet. I hope that I'll be able to get another Poetry Planet out to you before a month has gone by. We'll see about that. Um, but thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed the Reisling Award poems. This is me, signing out. Till the next visit to Poetry Planet. Diane, thank you so much. So finally, we have first chapters, and it's The Mechanicals, book one, The Apprentice by John Dobbs. John's done, you know, a couple of narrations, I think, for Starship Sofa, and we've played a short story by John Dobbs, and we've got another one in the pipeline as well, just waiting to get that narrated. I'll let John take over from here and explain The Mechanicals, book one, The Apprentice. It's the eve of the First World War, in an alternative England, where steam power rules land, sea and sky. But even as the spectre of war looms, the country has a more immediate battle to fight on its own shores. Vampire mermen, armies of the undead, burning policemen, invisible airships, undersea weapons, supernatural threats, and an orphaned factory apprentice, Edwin Bryce, thrown into a conflict on an unimaginable scale. Only one force can stand against the terror and devastation facing their countrymen, a group of heroes called the Mechanicals. The Mechanicals, book one, The Apprentice, is available now as an e-book from Barnes & Noble, Smashwords and other online retailers. The Mechanicals, book one, The Apprentice, written and read by John Dodds. Chapter one. Edwin Bryce usually awoke from a fitful slumber an hour or so before hearing the sound he most dreaded in the entire world, the horrible screech of the factory whistle calling him to work. There were other sounds he had to deal with as well, though these didn't usually trouble him. From some of the other bunks in the dim grey room would come nightly the commonplace snores, 
sometimes crying, or the whimpers and moans of boys in the throes of nightmares. In the early days, Edwin used to cry himself to sleep plenty of times too, so he had some sympathy for those currently responsible for this nocturnal chorus. The sounds of distress had put him more on edge than usual this past night in which he had slept only fitfully. He had been in a half doze for a while, but as the factory siren blew, he sat up straight all of a sudden with the feeling in his gut that something dreadful was about to happen. Glancing up at the damp patch on the underside of the blimp's mattress, which looked, if you scrunched up your eyes, like a map of America, he was relieved that it hadn't grown any bigger. Bill Carter, a.k.a. the blimp, had the least reliable bladder among the apprentices, and Edwin had been dripped on on more than one occasion. The blimp's huge body could make the whole bunk shudder, as though in an earthquake, if he so much as broke wind, as he tended to do quite often. But the upper tier wasn't moving on this occasion. What's up with you, Bryce? Seen a ghost? Jack Somerville, in his bed across the aisle, was leaning on his elbow and grinning. In the dim, early morning light, the most visible feature on his mucky face was that sinister smile of his. None of your beeswax, Edwin snapped. Ooh, Somerville mocked in a sing-song. Someone's got out the wrong side of bed this morning. Oi! A voice near the door called. Shut your holes! Ten even five yet! Edwin recognised the speaker as Dick O'Halloran. All of Dick's attempts to conceal his Irish origins to fit in with the other boys had thus far been in vain. Like Edwin, Dick too was an orphan, and one of the few apprentices Edwin actually liked. Somerville sniggered and leant forward to share the story of O'Halloran's latest exploit. Got yourself a new watch, innie. Lifted it off some bleeding tough in the flower market. Somerville was clearly waiting for some sort of reaction from Edwin, as he was always trying to drive wedges between friends in the bunk room. While it was true that Dick was a thief and an inveterate liar, he was charming with it. Edwin certainly didn't judge him. Somerville's poisonous gossip failed to irritate Edwin now, though. The sense of dread was too strong for such a banal distraction. He felt the hair on the back of his neck rise, his heart pounded like a steam piston, and his face was sweaty. He rubbed his eyes to make himself more awake, then slid out of bed and threw on his boiler suit for work. The suit, originally red, was now a rusty colour and smeared in patches with oil and soot. A few of the buttons were splitting with age, as were some of the garment's seams. When he pushed his feet with their thread-worn socks into his cold work boots, he flinched with a sudden sharp pain spiking his right eye. He strapped on his leather eye patch quickly in case it was cold air getting in, but the pain remained. In fact, when he stood up, it got worse, like someone pushing a needle into the bare socket. He bit his lip so as not to cry out. No extra points for getting in early, Bryce. Edwin ignored the parting shot and strode out of the room. The thick door swung shut behind him, cutting off Somerville. Why couldn't the bunk room bully stop flapping his gums just one time? A short flight of stone steps, enclosed by mildewed walls that constantly sweated moisture, led upward to street level. This early, the street lamps were out, extinguished around two o'clock so as to save on gas. There were no pedestrians at this hour. The only movement was the wraiths of fog and a stray dog that crossed his path. The mutt, a scruffy mongrel, face divided between black and white fur, the right black patch reminded Edwin of his own disfigurement, looked up at him mournfully. Edwin's right eye throbbed as he squatted down and reached a hand out to the creature. It responded by hunkering down and panting with distrust. The dog was thin, with a few ribs showing, and was splashed here and there with mud. Sorry, boy, I've nothing for you. 
Edwin said, feeling sorry for the beast in its plight. Maybe another time, OK? He stood up and walked on. The dog about-faced and made off, claws clacking on the cobblestones to seek elsewhere for a scrap to eat. Edwin had seen the beast around quite a bit lately, which surprised him. Dog catchers were an implacable lot as a rule, with a bit of cash to be made for each one netted. Few strays escaped their attentions. Weak with hunger or not, the mutt must be cleverer than any of its would-be captors. Edwin smiled at the idea. Keep both eyes open, Edwin. Edwin turned around, startled. The voice was barely a whisper, with an odd tone to it. The speaker must be close by, but he saw no one. He paced around. Hello, he said. Who's there? No answer. A movement caught his attention. A shadow near the ground, visible just barely through a snaky strand of fog. The shadow was small and squat. As he drew closer, it darted away. Not, as Edwin first supposed, in a doggy canter. Dogs don't talk either, but rather with a skulking, slithery motion that sent a tingle of fear down his spine. A car horn blatted in the distance, startling him out of his anxious trance. He resumed his walk to work, but at a much quicker pace. By the time he reached the factory gates, he was out of breath. The ornately filigreed arch above the gates bore a metal plaque, embossed with the words Allied Aquatics Limited. The monumental two-storey building beyond housed a smelter, panel-beating machines and a variety of construction units handling everything from parts assembly to plate finishing. Edwin himself was a lowly rivet-hole puncher and general gopher. The hiss of steam and the relentless percussion of rivet guns made his ears ring constantly. This morning, the gates were ajar, the thick chain and lock hung loose. While the smelters worked through the night, the gates were normally kept locked until the morning shift. In recent months, anti-war protesters had been creating trouble at the factory for turning many of its processes into military uses. What no one seemed to understand, though, was that naval commissions represented a huge boost for the city, bringing jobs to many more people and greatly aiding the failing marine industry. It came as no surprise, then, when he saw that the lock itself was broken. Its heavy hasp was bent and twisted out of shape by what must have been enormous force. A vertical band of hot orange light showed through the narrow opening of the gigantic sliding bay doors. As Edwin drew closer, he saw through the gap the smelter bucket boring molten iron into moulds on the conveyor belt. Two men tipped the bucket at precisely the right moment to fill each mould in turn without spilling any of its volcanic contents. Their thick protective suits and face shields made them seem twice the size of normal men. Scalding light and sparks reflected from their visors, giving them an almost demonic appearance. Edwin squeezed through the opening. The man on the opposite side of the conveyor turned his visored head towards him. He made a gloved thumbs-up to his colleague, who shoved forward a lever to stop the belt. The smelter bucket swung upright with a clang. Clambering over the conveyor between the two mould trays, the man approached Edwin, pulled off his gloves, thrust them into his belt and flipped off his visor. The face revealed was square-jawed with a fine, slender nose and plump lips. The redness of nose and cheek would have suggested to anyone who didn't know his profession that he was a boozer. Edwin knew, though, that not a drop of hard liquor passed Alan Strang's lips. Only a few pints of beer at the end of the working week. What's this, young'un? The blimp's bladder burst again. Edwin didn't laugh this time. Alan's banter was always in good part, and while he would never admit it, he had unofficially taken Edwin under his wing. Alan's co-worker, a curmudgeonly older man nicknamed Snipes, shook his head at the interruption, but took advantage of it to nip outside for a smoke. Someone's broke in, Alan. Front gate locks all busted up. 
Alan looked startled. Throwing his visor to the ground, he ran to the small metal door near the bay doors through which Snipes had gone. The door was for workers only and could only be opened from the inside without the key. Snipes, he called, running to the factory gates. The older man pushed himself off the wall he'd been leaning against, crushed out his cigarette beneath his boot and sprinted after him. Edwin stayed where he was, at the door. He saw Strang examine the lock with a shake of his head. He said something to Snipes that Edwin couldn't make out. While the two men were in discussion, a scraping noise caught Edwin's attention. It had come from inside the factory. He waited. Scritch, scritch, scritch. Edwin whipped around. The sound was louder, just on the other side of the door by which he stood. He was about to call over to Strang when the door slammed open, banging against his shoulder and throwing him to the ground. A sharp pain in his hip followed, just as though someone had kicked him. Then the sound of scampering feet. Edwin looked up, just in time to see a bloody shape around the canal end of the factory. More outraged than afraid, Edwin unthinkingly launched himself to his feet and set off in pursuit. Edwin was small and light and fit from his daily labours, consequently he was fast and not even out of breath when he reached the loading dock. The gates to the loading dock, too, were off their chain and thrown wide to allow access to the canal walkway and the loading platform below it. Edwin went to the edge of the walkway and craned his neck to peek over it. He studied the loading platform below. It was suspended close to the surface of the shipping canal's oily, viscous waters, low enough to make it easier for goods to be handled to and from the barges that plied their way between the seas to the east and west. No sign of anyone. Here, the fog hung more densely than in the city streets, intermingled as it was with the stinking gases produced by effluent, different species of algae and scum and other detritus which Edwin didn't care to think about. There were no barges docked today. On the opposite bank, the walls of a now disused dirigible factory loomed up in the murk like some medieval fortress. He peered more closely through the gaps between the planks until he saw movement. The low morning light reflected from the ripples in the freshly disturbed water. He knelt down and put his face close to the gap, peering hard to see what might be the cause. At first all he could make out was the oily ripples spreading and slowing. Could it be that whatever had caused them had already sunk to the bottom? In any case, the surface was black, too dense to make out anything below it. But in the next few seconds, the surface began to quiver. The ripples began to multiply and spread again, only this time much faster, almost as though... When the head bobbed up through the epicentre of the ripples and the dead eyes gazed into his own, Edwin fell back in horror. He must have screamed because, just as he was about to run, he felt himself pulled upright by his forearm. All right there, young'un, said Alan Strang, concern clearly visible in his features. Nothing to worry about. Edwin shivered, pointed. Down there. What is it, lad? Snipes said, stepping forward and squatting over the exact spot from which Strang had pulled him. After a minute or so of scanning the area, he added, Well, nothing there now, that's for sure. It wasn't until much later, after Edwin had put in the whole of that day in the usual gruelling work which the factory owners had insisted on, break-in or no break-in, that Edwin recalled in more detail what he'd seen. The face that had emerged from the water had had the most peculiar eyes he had ever seen. The eyes had been flat, expressionless, like those of a fish, and, while the head had been human-shaped and sized, the skin on that face hadn't really been skin at all. Instead, it had been a mask of blue-silver scales. There you go. Do pop over for, for that book there. I think I've just nipped over there and bought it myself. So there you go. Supporting the writers. 
That is Starship Sova's show 255. I hope you liked it. Don't forget, please pop over to the, the front of the website if you want to, you know, speak to Joe Haldeman, ask him a question, listen to the guy that wrote The Forever War, the, probably one of the greatest science fiction books out there. And if you, do, you know, if you want to donate to the Starship Sova, keep this old girl going, please, that would be fantastic. Do listen out to the other shows, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central and Protecting Project Pulp. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.